You're listening to Fighting Terror, a podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorists and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. For today's podcast, I'm very honoured to be joined by Mr. David Dowd. David is a research analyst focusing on Hezbollah and Lebanon at United Against Nuclear Iran. He also held a similar position at the Foundation for Defence of Democracies. In addition, he has experience working on Capitol Hill, where he worked in an advisory capacity on matters pertaining to the Middle East, Israel and Iran. Today, we will be discussing the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah. So, David, um, I suppose one of the questions that I'd like to kick off with is, you know, how would you define Hezbollah? You know, there are so many sort of uh, incarnations of this organization. Is it a militant Shia organization? Is it an anti-Israeli organization? Is it a a Shia Islamic uh, state uh, as an objective? Is it an Iranian proxy? You know, if you if you get to describe it in, in, in one sentence, how would you define Hezbollah? Well, I would say it's a group, uh, you know, it's commonly uh, misidentified as a, as a terrorist group. I would say it's a group that uses terrorism, among many other means, uh, to to expand its influence and its power. And it has an end goal, which its leaders have explicitly stated on multiple occasions, all the way back to the 1985 open letter, to, you know, to more recent times, that it is its goal is to establish an Iranian-style Islamic theocracy in Lebanon through uh, the freely elected will of the people, if you'll, if you'll believe that. So they are a terrorist group. They're also a social group, uh, you know, a charitable organization. They are an Islamist organization. I wouldn't call them a proxy of Iran because I think that minimizes the relationship or kind of misidentifies the relationship. I would say they are an extension of Iran in that it is very hard to identify where Hezbollah ends and where Iran begins or vice versa. It's kind of like saying, you know, that U.S. Delta Force is a proxy of the United States or that the Marines are a proxy of the United States. You know, I think that's an inaccurate way of, of, of you know, it's commonly called that, but it's, it's you know, it's, I don't think it quite captures the relationship um, between Iran and Hezbollah. I think the State Department um, previously described it as a strategic partnership. Do you think that's a more accurate description? I think it also kind of, you know, uh, misses the mark. It's a little bit short of the mark in that uh, I don't think it's 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 necessarily an in- because that implies there's a it's a relationship of interest that if somehow the interest, the national interest of Iran and the national interest of Hezbollah or the group interests of Hezbollah diverge, that somehow there will be a divergence in the relationship or a minimization of the relationship. Hezbollah has made this clear from the outset from 1985, and it's something they've reiterated even after they released the, their, their 2009 political document that their relationship to Iran is ideological. They are, they believe, they are believers, right? And I think we should take them at face value. I know in the West, you know, in the West, we don't have this concept really of religious belief so much as a as an animating factor. We're much more pragmatist, even among our religious groups here. But their relationship to Iran is not one of pragmatism, right? It is one of genuine fealty to the supreme leader of Iran, whom they believe to be the vicar of the Mahdi on earth, 
and in, in, in being so kind of the, the deputy of God in a certain way. So, you know, even if Hezbollah's fortunes were to be harmed by the relationship with Iran, for example, or vice versa, one would not see a divergence or a reduction uh, in the relationship. So strategic partnership kind of misses the point. Mm-hmm. And in terms of how Hezbollah is perceived by the U.S. administration, so, I mean, it's probably like any any relationship with a, with a terrorist organization, it, it has evolved, it has changed over over the decades. Um, uh-huh. You know, how have you, how, how would you assess the, the perception in the U.S. Um, from when the organization was formed in the early uh-huh. 80s right through to today under President Biden? Uh-huh. I think during the 1980s, we didn't really understand or know what Hezbollah was. Right During the 1980s, Hezbollah adopted a more shadowy public image, uh, operated under pseudonyms. Uh, you know, one got the impression in the 1980s that diffuse Shia groups that had similarities of ideology, but no central command or control structure were operating in Lebanon. So that perception, uh, I mean, we, I, I, I would like to think that we perceived it all along as a terrorist, you know, separate terrorist entities. That perception continued through the 90s. Through the 90s, we inadvertently granted Hezbollah a certain form of legitimacy, I would say, in the 1996 uh, April Understandings after the grapes of war or uh, grapes of wrath uh, operation that Israel had launched against these uh, against Hezbollah in South Lebanon that the understanding in effect legitimized Hezbollah's operations against Israel and South Lebanon in doing so this was the first grant of international legitimacy to any Hezbollah operations we basically recognized as the United States without saying so in so many words that Hezbollah's operations in South Lebanon were a resistance group or resistance actions that in effect, so long as Hezbollah was operating within the confines of South Lebanon uh, in the security zone that it was operating as a resistance group. I think, again, this missed the point in the 1990s because while Hezbollah was focusing on fighting the Israelis, at least ostensibly, right, they had operations abroad in Argentina, most famously or infamously, the goal was never to just eject the Israelis from South Lebanon. That was a stepping stone to operate within you know, an area of Lebanese Syrian consensus, right, where the you know the Syrian regime would not have brooked attacks, say, against the United States in the 1990s in, in, in Lebanon or against foreign or other foreign actors, right? The only uh, entity or group that the Syrians wanted harmed was the Israelis for their own reasons, right? For the Syria's own reasons, the Lebanese similarly. Uh, wanted the Israelis wanted pressure on the Israelis to leave Lebanon, an entirely legitimate request on the on, you know, on, on the part of Lebanon. Hezbollah injected itself into this kind of area of consensus. It focused its all of its energies here because this allowed it to grow its arsenal. By the time this edifice, if you will, this kind of this um, this incubator called the Israeli occupation fell by the wayside, Hezbollah was too powerful to disarm. It had used essentially the Israeli occupation as a as an incubator to uh, grow its power. And, you know, but that was it would, its end goal was never to end, but to stop operations uh, when the Israelis uh, withdrew through the 2000s. Um, you know, I think with the focus on the war on terrorism, uh, we took it. We started taking a tougher stance against Hezbollah, even though, you know, Hezbollah's leadership claimed that we reached out to them for a deal. But, you know, the Bush administration had reached out to them for a deal. If only they would, you know, cease their war against Israel. These are, I mean, these are claims that you can take with a grain of salt. Under the Biden administration, sorry, under the Obama administration, we started seeing a more, I don't want to call it nuanced, but a more complicated approach to Hezbollah. 
obviously there was the we, we never delisted them as a terrorist organization. We never pulled uh, you know, pulled that designation back. Uh, the Obama administration continued to sanction Hezbollah in contrast, you know, to their softening of their stance on Iran. But there was more of a willingness uh, to turn a blind eye to some Hezbollah actions, right? There was more of a willingness to emphasize Lebanon's stability, if and even if that stability um, empowered Hezbollah. Now this hasn't really changed, you know, even under the Trump administration. Uh, the Trump administration took it while it ratcheted up its actions against Hezbollah, definitely its rhetoric, kind of as part of its maximum uh, maximum pressure strategy against Iran. The end goal or the ultimate goal was to maintain Lebanon's stability, whatever the cost. And we can get into how you know, Lebanon's stability provides Hezbollah with room for growth, that there is kind of a symbiosis there. Under the Biden administration, what we've seen is a softening of the rhetoric even on Hezbollah, in addition to kind of accepting, um, maybe we're not quite where the French are, right? But accepting Hezbollah's existence, there's kind of a, I'll call it a modus vivendi that we have with them, but there's an acceptance of their place in Lebanon um, that has been signified through um, you know, rhetoric uh, of, of the Biden administration. Just a couple of examples, when Lukman Slim was assassinated, this, this is a Shiite activist who is known for more than anything for his activism against Hezbollah. And yet our ambassador, Dorothy Shea, uh, either in her subsequent statement or her attendance of memorial service for Lokman Sling, never mentioned Hezbollah at all. This, this opposition to Hezbollah. I can understand the desire to not want to implicate Hezbollah or directly accuse Hezbollah of uh, murdering Lukman Slim, given that, you know, there's no concrete evidence there. I can understand that one wants to proceed cautiously there, but to not even mention uh, this man's uh, life work, as it were, uh, seems, you know, it seems to want it to signify to Hezbollah that we're taking, you know, we're taking a bit of a, a bit of the pressure off. Um, most recently, you know, with Hezbollah's importation of Iranian fuel into Lebanon, this is something that violates U.S. sanctions. And our ambassador, again, Dorothy Shea, reflecting the views of the Biden administration, of course, uh, she's an ambassador. She doesn't make policy. She reflects it, uh, said that, you know, no one's going to fall on their sword if someone is going to import you know, fuel to keep the lights on in Lebanon's hospitals and that Lebanon can ultimately do what it wants. So. While there has been kind of a consistent recognition of Hezbollah as a terrorist organization, how that has manifested itself in practice has been has been varied from one administration to another. You know, varied forms of pressure, different type. You know, the rhetoric has changed. This has allowed Hezbollah to grow. I mean, we've had sanctions on them. We've designated them as an FTO in 1997. We just, you know, a couple of weeks ago passed the uh, you know anniversary of that that designation. Hezbollah has continued to grow. Uh, our, our, our sanctions have had very little impact on it, on Hezbollah's ability to grow. Uh, we've made it more inconvenient, but beyond that, we the consistency of placing Lebanon's stability uh, as a priority above countering Hezbollah's growth has also allowed Hezbollah. Uh, it's a, it's a policy that ends up working against itself, and it's allowed Hezbollah enough room to continue maneuvering around our sanctions, maneuvering around our pressure, and continue growing. Sorry for the long answer on that. No, it's 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 really interesting, and uh, I suppose it begs the question as to how stable any state can be when it's so heavily directed by uh, an organization with a growing and ever growing terrorist operation. A question just in terms of the U.S. position, and I suppose particularly under the current administration. I mean, I mean, do you put it down to perception? Domestically, mm-hmm. about U.S. engagement abroad, do you think it has more to do with just greater concern on other 
other parts of the region. You know, obviously mm-hmm. the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan has mm-hmm. has created a pretty unstable situation. Mm-hmm. Or is it just about, you know, a kind of a, a medium term eye on the prize of reinstating the JCPOA or renegotiating a new form version of the JCPOA, the Iran deal? And is that mm-hmm. is, is, is it sort of that at all costs? And, you know, to hell with uh, what that means in terms of the uh, of mm-hmm. empowering Hezbollah in the short term. I, I can't imagine that's not a factor, right? As, as we discussed earlier, you know, Iran, uh, Hezbollah is Iran's extension. And if anything, it is its most valuable extension. Iran, or sorry, Hezbollah has spearheaded Iranian operations in various parts of the region. Um, so they're a critical element of the constellation of, of actors that Iran controls. Um, I mean, one could call them even the vanguard of, of Iran's regional operations. So to, to to signify to Iran that you were trying to take a different approach, particularly where Iran in these negotiations on the nuclear deal is saying this is nuclear only. We are not touching, uh, you know, it is not going to touch human rights. It's certainly not going to touch the militias, without which Iran would have no regional projection power. So it, that that to me... It is a signal to the Iranians, part of it, and partially it's a signal to the Iranians that we are taking a different approach. We are interested in returning to the JCPOA. And yes, we accept, tacitly we're signaling that we accept this idea that the JCPOA or the return to the JCPOA will be concentrated only on the nuclear issue and other files, other issues, including terrorism, uh, support for these non-state actors, and human rights issues will be dealt with separately. I think the other part of it, though, is this fixation on stabilizing Lebanon, that you know there is an idea that Lebanon's stability is somehow critical to regional stability, that if we, we cannot allow Lebanon to collapse, that is, a highest, that is the highest value we place on, on our Lebanon policy. And in doing so, pragmatism, I guess, as it's perceived by uh, people putting it into place, this pra- this you know so-called pragmatism requires that we kind of ease the pressure on Hezbollah in certain ways where pressuring Hezbollah might damage Lebanon. For example, again, with the fuel importations, right, where, yes, Hezbollah is going to be making a cut off of this financially. It might be a small cut, but they are they are making some money off it. Beyond that, they are uh, winning a, a huge PR, a, you know, a huge PR campaign. I know that uh, certain U.S. officials have kind of dismissed that as as just a stunt with no with no broader impact. But Hezbollah thrives off narratives. Other things, I mean, Hezbollah's inclusion inclusion in the government. We we've never pressed Lebanon to exclude Hezbollah from the government because of the implications that would have for Lebanon. Right? You could create societal fissures. So again, Lebanon's stability is the priority. With the Lebanese armed forces, we have been training and equipping and funding the Lebanese armed forces for going on 16 years now, since 2005. One of the things that we've required is the international communities in the United States is the disarmament of Hezbollah. It's 15 UN Security Council Resolution 1559, 1701. But in order to do so, had you know, if the LAF were to take the decision to disarm Hezbollah, this would lead to potentially civil disturbances, civil war. It would harm Lebanon's stability. We therefore don't press too hard. And, you know, many other examples, of things like this, where we will not press Lebanon too hard on Hezbollah, where we feel that Lebanon could be Lebanon's stability could be harmed. So I think that's that's perhaps a percentages here, but it's it's a, it's a, it's 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 a at least an equal factor as you know, concern for returning to the JCPOA because we also saw it under the Trump administration, which had little concern with returning to the JCPOA. Yet they also continued funding to the laugh. You know they were trying to negotiate border demarcation between Lebanon and Israel, for example, which would you know have allowed Lebanon to explore potential hydrocarbon resources, offshore hydrocarbon resources, bringing in money 
that would have obviated the need for reform. But again, when you bring in money that obviates the need for reform in Lebanon, you've created stability without change, without changing the, you know, the, the kind of the critical parts of what has made Lebanon, what has led Lebanon to failure. And in doing so, you've created a stability that allows Hezbollah to thrive. But again, because stability is the, uh, the top priority, it's something we are willing to kind of bite the bullet on. Mm-hmm. It explains a lot. I'll come back to the to the new government in a moment, mm-hmm. but I'm curious to to get your thoughts on on what all of this means from a U.S. perspective, vis-a-vis the relationship with Israel. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I can only assume that there will be quite a degree of concern uh, in Tel Aviv um, mm-hmm. about the manner in which the new administration in the U.S. is approaching this. And possibly, you know, all recent administrations have approached Hezbollah. Look, I think for the Israelis, um, Hezbollah has been uh, the primary uh, security concern for well over a decade and a half. Iran, yes, the idea of building the nuclear weapon. I mean, this that would be even Iran never fires the nuclear weapon. Iran's very possession of a nuclear weapon is a is an existential game changer for Israel. But that we're not there yet. Right now, you have this increasingly... Um, powerful organization on the border with Israel that is increasing its arsenal that makes it very clear, you know, they are they are dedicated to Israel's destruction. Can they do it is a different issue. Is it rhetoric is a different issue. But, you know, they, they do want to harm Israel. They do want to harm Israelis. Uh, this has made Hezbollah Israel's primary security concern, the forefront of Israel's immediate security concerns. It's not an existential threat, uh, but it is definitely a strategic, uh, it's a strategic threat. Now, there's been less friction between the Americans and the Israelis on Hezbollah than they say has been even under you know, the Netanyahu era or during the Netanyahu era. There was less friction on Hezbollah than there was on Iran. It seems that on the surface, we do, you know, we do come to turn or we do have kind of an overlap of views. Right. There's no ostensible or there's no sorry, there's no obvious or there's no open American drive for, say, reconciliation with Hezbollah or normalization with Hezbollah. Now, the Israelis have kind of taken this tack that Lebanon equals Hezbollah equals Lebanon. It's a bit simplistic, but, you know, the, obviously the Americans take a very different approach to this. So there are differences in the approach, but there seems to be an overlap or there is an overlap in the desire to weaken, degrade and ultimately have Hezbollah fade away from existence. Both sides are taking different approaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously Israel has less of a capability to work within the Lebanese sphere. Countries don't have diplomatic relations. They have a history of warfare to, you know, to, to weaken Hezbollah. Israel's only capability uh, in, in terms of dealing with Hezbollah is military. It's ex- almost exclusively military. The United States has different tools. Now, the question is whether either side is employing the tools at their at their disposal properly. I would say that neither side is kind of getting it fully right. Clearly, Israel has, uh, you know, launched several campaigns against Hezbollah. They've been clashing since the 1980s. Uh, you've had, you know, two major campaigns in the 1990s, 2006 war, uh, this, you know, what, what the Israelis called the Mabam, right? The the, the, the war between the wars, the Milchama bin Amilchamot, it's still not, you know, Hezbollah is still growing. It might be growing at a you know, slower pace due to Israeli military actions in Syria, uh, intelligence operations in Lebanon. But it's a speed bump, and the Israelis realize it. At the same time, the United States has taken its different approach, either working within the Lebanese sphere by recruiting, you know, working with allies, potential allies, by aiding Lebanon, by, you know, creating this idea of Lebanese state institutions as a counterweight to Hezbollah, be it the left or the Lebanese state itself. That also hasn't worked. Uh, we see Hezbollah continuing to grow. And I think that's because neither side is kind of 
pinched Hezbollah where it really hurts. And maybe the Israelis have less capability to do it than the Americans, but the Americans also, we're not doing it right either, clearly, if our goal is to to get rid of Hezbollah. Is there, um, is there, so. is there an overlap in interest also in, in terms of, I mean, I assume Israel uh, in maintaining stability, mm-hmm. there's an alignment of, of, of view there as well, I guess. There is to a certain degree. I mean, Israel does not oppose aid to the laugh principle. Uh, Israel's not necessarily calling for the United States. It's not pressuring the United States, even under the Netanyahu era, right? There was pressure on the United States, or at least maybe, you know, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Netanyahu and, and President Trump, right? There's, there's these reports that Prime Minister Netanyahu was a critical influence on President Trump's desire, desire to, uh, to uh, or decision to withdraw from the JCPOA. There wasn't an equal, uh, you know, if Netanyahu indeed had that influence over President Trump, it seems he didn't employ it vis-a-vis Lebanon, even though Netanyahu will often say that we are holding the Lebanese state accountable. We're, you know, if, if anything happens, Hezbollah launches a war, Lebanon itself will suffer. Lebanon itself will also pay a price. There's this, this idea of stabilizing Lebanon also exists on the Israeli side. And, you know, there is there is value to it in the sense that, I mean, we'll give an example, um, the tripartite meetings that exist between and the UNIFIL and the IDF, they do go to a certain degree to kind of, you know, uh, act as uh, a channel for de-escalation to convey security concerns. I mean, there to some degree, it probably has prevented larger escalation. At the same time, Hezbollah is still growing unabated, right? It, 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 so it's, it's the stability that Israel is interested in provides a certain degree of benefit. And I think they're focused on that as well. Probably they're also afraid of kind of the day after scenario. What happens if the Lebanese state collapses? What happens if you have you know, a, a, a much more failed state, a chaotic state uh, on yeah. your northern border. Well, maybe maybe uh, jumping on, on that notion of a, mm. of a failed state, because, I mean, mm. it's it's a state that has been governmentless and rudderless mm. for for over a year. And uh, now there is a new government in place. Mm. Um, and you mm. alluded to this already um, in terms of the influence of Hezbollah. I mean, mm. we know we know that there hasn't been any major pressure applied mm. um, on the mm. new administration to distance itself from Hezbollah and Possibly at this point in time, that's not realistic. But what does it look like? What is that connection to Hezbollah? You know, would you describe some of the ministers holding government ministries as active Hezbollah operatives? Are they something different? Is there a kind of a a Chinese wall? What does it look like in practice? When you have two, two of the government ministers are direct members of Hezbollah, right? Uh, and and you know, to the idea we can discuss this in, in depth more. This kind of this idea of the political wing versus the military wing—is there such a thing um, at all, or is this kind of a fiction that certain actors in the West have even created to justify working with with Hezbollah again in the interest of maintaining Lebanese stability? Is there anything to be expected different from the government? I I don't think so. Uh, if we're talking about reforms, one thing to note, and actually Hassan Nasrallah makes this point, and I tend to agree with him on this, that Lebanon has a lot of problems and they can't all be attributed to Hezbollah. Hezbollah is one critical element of uh, why Lebanon is, I, in my opinion, a failed state already. But there are also other issues, meaning if you get rid of Hezbollah, somehow the Lebanese kind of come to a consensus and Hezbollah loses its popular support. Hezbollah is disarmed, its leaders arrested, the organization is gone. I don't think Lebanon would necessarily turn into a success story overnight. We have to remember that Lebanon got here during the civil war, even it collapsed way before Hezbollah ever existed. And it wasn't as a result of Hezbollah's existence or some kind of proto Hezbollah that existed. Lebanon kind of has the ingredients for failure built in. So there's kind of extensive reform that's required. And that extensive reform, yes, includes disarming Hezbollah, includes getting rid of its shadow state. But 
I don't think the Lebanese government will ever take action for that because it would lead to much more societal discontent. Uh, potentially, you know, if Hezbollah feels threatened, we saw what they did in Syria when they saw their 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 interests were that threatened. They went to war, uh, and I think they would do that in Lebanon. And I think the Lebanese want to avoid a civil war. In terms of other reform, I don't see the Lebanese officials or the new government implementing reform because it would mean weakening their own interests. It would mean weakening their own power. Genuine reform would take these feudal lords um, and you know weaken their patronage systems from which they get popular support. Uh, it would weaken their hold on you know critical governmental institutions from which they siphon off money. And I don't think they're going to... And it would probably put them in a position where they would have to be prosecuted and put in jail, and they're not going to do that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting the way you, you present it. I mean, I guess terrorist organizations and distant groups rarely thrive in a in a perfect democratic environment. You know, usually it's a failed or failing state which creates the conditions for these organizations to to thrive and benefit. Um, and I think Lebanon is a is a unfortunately a really good example of that. One of the things that I've I have been uh, observing though is is that you know there does appear to be a movement, or I'm not sure if it's coherent or if it's just sort of organic separate groups like business leaders, activists who seem to be finding their voice, um, civil society groups being more openly critical of Hezbollah um, and indeed, I guess, of, of mm-hmm. wider, you know, corruption and, mm-hmm. and maladministration in, in the country, particularly since the explosion last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that something that perhaps, I mean, you talked about PR mm-hmm. earlier and mm-hmm. the PR success, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Iranian oil import. I mean, <clears throat> You know, is is this an opportunity for the West, for the United States and others to actually, you know, tacitly support some of these these groups that are that appear to be springing up? Well, I think there's kind of a there's a lot of moving parts to this question, but let's let's go back to you know we just hit the uh, the two year anniversary of the October seventeenth, twenty nineteen. Uh, I don't like to call it a revolution because uh, it wasn't. There were a lot of voices, including analysts in in, in Washington D.C., who said, "Ah, this is the death knell of Hezbollah." I think there were even pieces that were you know, because there was a coincidence of the uh, the protests in Lebanon with Iraq with Iran. There were even analyses that were predicting that this was the uh, you know the the beginning of the demise of Iranian regional hegemony. We clearly see this isn't true. And if we go kind of on a, on a more micro level, if we go down to who these protesters were, first of all, they were not united by any cohesive ideology. This wasn't, it's a mistake to kind of frame this as kind of Cedar Revolution 2.0, where when the Cedar Revolution happened, there was, you know, you had perhaps economically and ideologically diffuse groups that wanted one thing, which was Syria to, to be removed from from Lebanon. You don't have this, you know, the current street protests. You have, I mean, there were even pro-Hezbollah people that came out into the street protests. I know that some analysts here like to highlight only the anti-Hezbollah voices, but there's recording even of people among these protesters, Christians, Shia, a different group, uh, were saying, you know, we respect Hezbollah, not them, you know. They're, they're, so it wasn't, a, it wasn't an ideologically coherent group that was fixated on Hezbollah or any particular group per se. This wasn't a referendum on Hezbollah. What this was a referendum on was that the system is not working anymore. The system's not feeding us. The system's not giving us the basic necessities to live in dignity as citizens. Whomever the heck could give them these these necessities, I think they would have gone with. So had the system continued working, whomever it was dominated by, I think the people would have remained quiescent. I don't think they would have gone to the streets. Now, that's in terms of kind of the ideological disunity. Now, you do have voices that are anti-Hezbollah. I don't think they're powerful enough to do anything against Hezbollah. I know there's a lot of talk about civil society and the importance of Lebanese civil society. But at the end of the day, as we see Lebanon collapsing, you know, the average Lebanese citizen wants basic necessities at this point. Food. I mean, I have a, I have a friend who visited me from Lebanon recently. We, you know, 
got dinner and uh you know the, the thing she remarked to me was it's so nice to not be playing russian roulette while i'm eating because people are getting food poisoning because there's no electricity so if hezbollah can provide that right then people might gravitate towards them whereas the civil society they might in theory have a solution to lebanon's ills and and, and let's let's be honest i mean this is a, a small intellectually elite group probably i don't know how representative they are of the average you know the average lebanese but they also don't have bread they don't have water uh you know there was a there was a image I saw on Twitter that was actually mocked uh, by, by a particular analyst here in D.C., uh, where it's like a, a bread stand in the middle of the street and pictures of Nasrallah. And, you know, I think there's slogans that, you know, nobody will go hungry on Nasrallah during Nasrallah's watch. And, you know, someone said, oh, this is laziness, like Hezbollah is becoming lazy. And to me, it was it was brilliant because, well, you're feeding people. You're actually giving them something they can put in their stomachs that they can't otherwise afford. Civil society is giving them a lot of slogans. Mm. Right. And and even those slogans, even the plans that we see civil, that civil society has for reform, they're very 50,000 foot view. And this is something we also see from the so-called protest movement. I think it's an error to call it a movement because that implies some kind of ideological unity. It focuses on the 50,000 foot view. But then when you get down to the brass tacks. Well, what does reform look like? What does, you know, uh, you know, uh, reforming the judiciary or a proper economy or, or any, what do any of these things look like? I think you're going to have the ideological fissures that still exist, as we've seen, break this movement apart to where it's no longer a viable force. So I, I, I think it was, it was mistaken to assume that this would weaken Hezbollah. I think the framing was also mistaken. And Hezbollah has definitely navigated this. I don't think it was... It was never a threat to Hezbollah per se. And I think Hezbollah has definitely navigated whatever potential threats existed uh, within this this uprising. Yeah. The one the, the, the thing to, to really note, though, you know, you were mentioning, you know, business owners and people coming out and saying things again, not a new phenomenon. The, the other thing is the novelty of it, that, yes, people came out and spoke. And then they were silenced through various means. And yeah, maybe they're speaking a little bit more, but they're speaking in anger, right? They're, 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 this is now, they have nothing to lose. But a couple of things to consider here first. Well, three things to consider. The novelty are, particularly in the Shia community, are anti-Hezbollah Shia a novelty? They're not. The second thing to consider is critical mass. Do these people who have come out and spoken constitute a critical enough of a critical mass of Shia society that and including Hezbollah supporters to to create a unified or a large enough Shia bloc that makes Hezbollah no longer a legitimate organization. And the third thing is organization itself. Are these people organized enough? Are they unified enough to confront an organization which is a well-oiled machine? And I don't think that this opposition has any of those three components. And because of that, and Hezbollah does by contrast, uh, and because of that, I think, you know, we, they will eventually tire out, as we're seeing. You might see sporadic bumps of discontent, but eventually I think they're going to tire out. Is is Hezbollah's consolidation of power, if you like, uh, domestically then very much contingent on solving a lot of these problems? The food shortages, electricity yeah. and basic commodities. I mean, I mean, <clears throat> I understand what you're saying about the yeah. lack of cohesion and the, and the lack yeah. of momentum and sheer yeah. numbers, I guess. Um, but I mean, if if these problems continue, and the, this new government, which Hezbollah is obviously a, a key feature, yeah. doesn't respond and solve these problems, you know, in twelve, eighteen months or or longer, further down the line, yeah. you know, could, could this manifest itself as a, bi- a bigger problem for Hezbollah? I mean, you know, it's it's hard to predict. There are a lot of moving parts that could you know factor one way or another. Uh, one thing Hezbollah has done to I guess to address this this particular concern, right? If this isn't solvable, you know, Hezbollah also operates you know, on, on propaganda narrative. 
This is why I think it was an error for our, our officials to kind of dismiss the propaganda value of some of their actions. And one thing they've, they've been working on since the outset of this collapse, this latest, I mean, Lebanon's biggest crisis, is a propaganda narrative that Lebanon's problems, yes, you know, the, the bad economic policies of the 90s and early 2000s have contributed, but the real factor, the real culprit is the United States, right? There's a financial siege on Lebanon that is designed to break Lebanon because America wants to destroy the resistance and make Lebanon, uh, you know, uh, easy prey for uh, a rapacious Israel that is waiting to just come in uh, at the drop of a hat and, you know, destroy and kill and maim left and right. And really Hezbollah is standing up against them, right? It's not like, oh, well, you know, according to this narrative, you know, one could say, well, oh, the Lebanese could just turn their backs on Hezbollah, but then you're going to get rapacious evil Israel, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, Hezbollah in standing up and enduring the siege is actually continuing to save Lebanon. So this might work on their followers. And if it does, then they still have legitimacy. The other thing we could see, I mean, when we say solve this, right, that's a very, I'd say it's a very vague term. Are we talking about bringing Lebanon into becoming a functioning state? Um, I don't think any, again, I don't think any Lebanese politician has an interest in that. Returning the stability that existed, say, on or the veneer of stability that existed on October 16th, 2019, for example, where Lebanon continued to limp along, where, you know, between uh, handouts and superficial reforms, or, or sorry, international, you know, aid and handouts in exchange for superficial reforms, that you just limp along between one donor conference and the next, that's not out of the realm of the possible. And I think Hezbollah would welcome that. But at the same time, I mean, look, what we've seen from Hezbollah and their ideological fellow travelers, you know, the, the constellation of Iranian uh, militias, uh, is that they would rather rule over rubble than concede any power. So, I, you know, I, I think that if they are pushed into a corner where they have to fight for their survival, and this is on their home turf, we saw them do this in Syria, right, where they thought the downfall of Assad was uh, an existential threat. They moved in without concern for life, limb, and I think they would do even more so in Lebanon if, if pushed to that. Mm-hmm. Does I mean, my my sort of um, understanding of Hezbollah is that it enjoys uh, quite a degree of um, domestic popularity, uh, mm-hmm. relatively speaking, when it you know attends to the concerns, the domestic concerns, the mm-hmm. social welfare system, the mm-hmm. sort of things that we've just been discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, does it lose support when it engages in? overseas adventurism, Syria and further afield. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier South America. We know of Hezbollah's activities in Mm -hmm. uh, East Africa and um, Mm -hmm. and other other Southeast Asia. I mean, Mm -hmm. does that erode popular support amongst Lebanese people? I mean, I think it depends which groups you're talking about among the Lebanese, right? You know, there were rumors that there were grumbles within the Shiite community Right, reports of this, right, that we're a resistance organization meant to fight Israel. Why are we killing Syrians in Syria? Why are we killing fellow Arabs, fellow Muslims, whatever? And again, this is where narrative comes in. And this worked on a great number of many Christians uh, as well, uh, like the village of Al-Qa, for example, which which was uh, taken over by ISIS, or even many of the, you know, the, the free patriotic movement supporters. Uh, the narrative that came out was that these Takfiri terrorists are coming to Syria and uh, we are preempting them before they come to Lebanon and cut off people's heads here. Uh, That worked to a certain degree, right? It worked to a certain degree. I think the kind of the yardstick is whether, uh, you know, if you want to call them sovereigntist Lebanese to the extent that one can call that, right? Again, how do you distinguish between the rhetoric and really what is in practice? Sad Haridis types, maybe Samir Jaja, 
who talk, you know, talk like they want to restore Lebanese sovereignty, but in practice end up accommodating Hezbollah to where all that talk is just mere rhetoric. But from their perspective, right, Hezbollah's actions, what they're really bothered by are any Hezbollah actions that might negatively impact Lebanon or its its foreign relations. So if something goes by the wayside, I don't think they're going to be too concerned. It's not, it's, so it's not the foreign adventurism per se, it's the impact on Lebanon that might lead to some, you know, heightened rhetoric. Now on the street, yeah, you, you probably, you know, you probably have this among certain sectors, mm-hmm. uh, maybe certain Sunnis, maybe certain Maronite Christians, Maybe even some Shia who who think to themselves that, you know, what do we need from this? What is this serving us? This is actually harming Lebanon. But, you know, you might go to others who say, well, Hezbollah saved us from ISIS ever coming to Lebanon. They went and fought in Syria from, from you know, to preempt ISIS from ever coming here. You know, their actions against Israel. And I think there's more consensus on that, by the way. Like most mm-hmm. Lebanese probably don't want Hezbollah to instigate a war with Israel. But when it comes to actions against Israel, there's a lot more consensus on, on Hezbollah's actions. So it's a complicated picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it certainly is. Um, I want to come back to just something that we touched on a little bit earlier um, in the context of how the international community views Hezbollah. And I mean, I, I think I'd like to get your thoughts on how the European Union has um mm sort of uh, assisted or not assisted in uh, in their response to, to Hezbollah. Um, obviously, you alluded to it earlier, you know, the, this sort of artificial distinction between the military wing and the political wing, the EU has has been careful to maintain that, although individually EU member states have, have taken a different stance. Do you think that hampers a coherent response from the international community uh-huh. to Hezbollah to shutting down their uh, funding streams, illicit uh-huh. financing of terrorist activities and so on. How does that work? Of course, I think, I, yes. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll start with Hezbollah's self-conception. Its leadership have, you know, this used to be kind of called uh, the, the when the United Kingdom actually broke away from this idea that has, there's a distinction between the two. Uh, Nasrallah once upon a time called this an English innovation. Right. Like this is like they came they came up with this thing and it's not real. You know, there is no, as you called it earlier, a Chinese wall or a firewall between these two sides. Naim Qasim, who's the deputy secretary general, has elaborated on this more and said everything we have is goes to the resistance. There's a symbiosis between all of these actions. Right. The political feeds into the social, feeds into the military, into the terrorist and so on and so forth. So there is no place where Hezbollah's political actions stop and its military actions start. And as an extension, as a corollary, there's no there's no place where it's you know fundraising for charitable purposes starts and that money going into its its military uh, operations stops. You know, this is money is fungible and there is no distinction between these wings. They both uh, even framing it as wings kind of misidentifies how Hezbollah is structured. You have you know the Executive Council, which answers to the Supreme or to the Secretary General Nasrallah, and under under that Supreme Council, you have five councils, you know, the executive, the political, the military, and they all, all answer to the same leadership. They all work in tandem. There is no distinction between them. So if an entity is allowed to fundraise uh, in France, for example, uh, it's a Hezbollah charity ostensibly for orphans. Well, but that money, if it needs to be diverted to to buy Katusha rockets or to fund activities in Syria, it's going to. And beyond that, it, let's say even if it does just go to orphans. But then you're enhancing Hezbollah's prestige. Right? You're enhancing its political, its popular support, and in doing so, you are creating a, a, a base, a popular base that legit that, that gives Hezbollah's military activities legitimacy. 
because Hezbollah does not say this is one thing and that's another. Now, yeah, it, it, it does obviously hinder, fun, uh, hinder our ability to tamp down on Hezbollah's fundraising. It's legitimization of Hezbollah's, I mean, we'll take the French example, right? This idea of Lebanese stability as an end goal and an ultimate end goal beyond which we do nothing. We just want to stabilize Lebanon. Uh, I mean, this is kind of, this is the French, this is French foreign policy vis-a-vis Lebanon. Doing so, you're actually harming Lebanon because as we mentioned earlier, no, you know, Hezbollah is kind of, it's not the totality of Lebanon's problems, but it is a critical part of Lebanon's problems. Without, you know, without removing Hezbollah, you can't start any other reform uh, because reform is inimical to Hezbollah's growth, just as instability, by the way, is inimical, inimical to Hezbollah's growth. So it's a kind of a, a, a sweet spot, if you will, a middle ground. But you hinder reform. So all you're doing is creating stability that allows the Hezbollah, Hezbollah to grow and to continue subsuming uh, the state's strength, kind of you know, bringing Lebanon down, hampering Lebanon. So it not only hinders international counterterrorism efforts, it also hinders Lebanon's path to stability, to recovery. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, yeah it's a it's a it's a bizarre policy and uh, I think you know we, we see we see the genesis of maybe some changes but but I guess with with uh, that false distinction um, still prevailing yeah. on this side of the Atlantic in Europe yeah. and a policy I won't call it of appeasement but possibly yeah. of turning a blind eye um, in the U.S. administration it leaves me somewhat pessimistic as we draw yeah. this conversation to a conclusion unfortunately. <laughs> I'm relying on you now, David, to apply all of your um, insight and expertise to share with me and our listeners, um, you know, some some sort of positive, proactive steps that the international community could take or, you know, a shift in policy, which you might advocate that that could actually um, possibly make mm-hmm. a difference in terms of um, curtailing the activity of mm-hmm. Hezbollah and and hopefully ultimately mm-hmm. seeing, you know, the, the, the growth of democratic institutions mm-hmm. and uh, genuine legitimacy legitimate governance in Lebanon? That's a big open question, I know, but any it thoughts is, about would be really welcome. <laughs> well, look, I mean, I think we have to keep our expectations low. Uh, we have tried to kind of build, as, as you know, the United States, particularly the West, we've tried to build uh, democratic institutions, functioning democratic institutions in parts of the world, uh, that, and we've been met with severe disappointment. So I don't know if that necessarily should be our end goal in the immediate term, that's up to the Lebanese. Ultimately, we can't create uh, we can't create a kind of a democratic environment or a democratic spirit for them. Uh, that has to come from them. That's on them. Uh, what we can do to make their life easier, though, is to try to internationalize the prescription on Hezbollah. And maybe we can't get it in the UN Security Council because you have actors like Russia and China that see an interest a in Hezbollah's existence. Right? If we're going to go. For entering a new Cold War, for example, the United States with China. You know, the, the Middle East was a critical, critical, critical zone uh, in our last Cold War with the Soviets. There's no reason why it wouldn't be in our in a future Cold War with China. And each side might be wanting to scramble now to pick up as many pieces as they want, many actors, many allies. Hezbollah is open to an alliance with China. Hezbollah has been trying to direct Lebanon eastward for a long time to have the Chinese come in and, you know, build infrastructure, electricity, what have you. And I think the Chinese might respond in kind. I mean, they're trying to, you know, they can buy, you know, they can buy Lebanon as junk bonds, basically. They can come in and build infrastructure on the cheap and they would increase their influence in the region and would put them on uh, on the border with a critical U.S. ally and allow them through that to have pressure on the United States. So, um, for actors like Russia and China, I don't think we can ever have, because of them, because of those interests, uh, I don't think we could ever have an interna- a fully international prohibition on Hezbollah, similar to what we had when it came to ISIS. Now, 
we can still work on a country to country basis or region to region basis. And I think that's critically important. The more you proscribe Hezbollah in its entirety everywhere, the more you can dry up their streams of funding, the more you can you know, show that Hezbollah's very existence is going to harm Lebanon. And that, I think, should be the, the main approach. We should also, I mean, we should give backing to our allies also to feel that they can take more measures against Hezbollah. But the main thing, I think, would be to... The critical actor in this is France, right? I think if France uh, decides to move on this issue, you also have New Zealand, Australia, but to internationalize as much as possible uh, the prohibition on Hezbollah on a country-to-country basis. Again, we're not going to get everything, but... And in the meantime, also, I mean, I think what we can do for Lebanon itself is... We need to encourage Lebanon to fend for itself. It's harsh. I mean, given what's happening in Lebanon, it is not, you know, it's, it's not a it's not an easy reality. And, and, you know, it's 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 always difficult to see people suffer. But if we're thinking about the long term, uh, if we come in and stanch the bleeding, Lebanon's bleeding, if we come in and, you know, uh, offer some more aid to kind of plaster the cracks in the dam rather than repair it. Uh, then all we're doing is kind of prolonging this situation where Lebanon doesn't uh, ever become a functioning state. So perhaps a tougher approach with Lebanon itself, where there are actual consequences to uh, just the lack of reform, but to, you know, allowing this country to be uh, a base for one of the, if not the world's most uh, lethal terrorist organization, one of the world's most destabilizing actors, there has to be a consequence to that. And the Lebanese have the solution is only with the Lebanese. We can't solve it for them. Uh, I don't think there's any appetite, either in the in the West or definitely not in Israel, to occupy Lebanon long term and do that work that would take to dismantle Hezbollah. And even there, you know, you can't dismantle an ideology long term. We we learned this lesson from Afghanistan right, with the resurgent Taliban. So it is it is up, ultimately up to the Lebanese themselves to to take care of this problem. I don't know what encouragement we can give them, what support that we can give them that wouldn't ultimately lead to a perpetuation of this this short-term stability that allows Hezbollah's growth. I also, at the current moment, if I'm looking at the constellation of Lebanese actors, I don't know who we should necessarily support. You know, I don't know who's, who's, a, who's an actor that we can say, okay, if we put our backing behind this group or this individual, this series of individuals, they can deliver results. That That is lacking. But when that when that actually happens, uh, and that is up to the Lebanese themselves to create, then, then the United States, the Western community, or the international community can step in and help those specific actors. But right now, I think we, we need to take a, a wait and see approach to see how the Lebanese tackle this. Mm, okay. Well, look, it's, it's a really interesting time to have this conversation. It definitely doesn't end here. So I would really like to maybe have a follow-up conversation with you. Absolutely around the global footprint of Hezbollah that I think would be really interesting to explore in more detail. Sure. Um, and also, you know, um, maybe let's give it some time and uh, yeah. and see how things pan out over the, the next six yeah. months or so. Uh, and we can, yeah. we can definitely have a part two to this podcast. But uh, David, Absolutely. thank you so much for sharing your insights uh, and your expertise. It's been really interesting. I think you've debunked uh, some myths uh, throughout our discussion, which, which is really useful. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time and I'm looking forward to having that stage two conversation in the not too distant future. So thank you so much. Likewise. Thank you. I'm looking forward to our next conversation and thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter-Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website. 